Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26. I label my sermons in my computer by the chapter, and then I just add a a different letter for each one in the chapter. So this is Matthew 26G, as we've been in this chapter for quite a while. Lord willing, we will be moving on after this one. I don't think there's any more to the chapter. I don't feel like preaching any part of it again. This is God's Word. I would remind you that though it was written long ago, He wrote it with them in mind and with you in mind even this day. God's Word starting in verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, while the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered The saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Father, would you please give life and light to our hearts that our faith might grow. For Christ's sake, amen. One, I would say, fairly recent addition to our kind of cultural narrative as a a nation and as a globe is this uh, kind of fairly recent, seemingly, invention of cancel culture, you know, where some kind of figure who has some sort of national recognition in some format, whether that be on Twitter or uh, Hollywood or some other politician of the sort, crosses some cultural invisible boundary and then collectively is punished by the rest of the crowd, shunned and blamed and cut off. In fact, actually this morning, just um, out of curiosity, I googled to see what would the headline be for cancel culture. And this shows kind of where we're at as a world right now, where apparently Vladimir Putin and J.K. Rowling are at it against each other, trying to get each other canceled. And I can't believe I ever had to actually say that sentence. I mean, out of all the things I thought I would ever say, Vladimir Putin and J.K. Rowling, dealing with what is the definition of a woman and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, It's unbelievable. And really, if you actually think about it, it in some sense kind of makes sense uh, from the perspective of a book I don't tend to appreciate, but Pride and Prejudice, that great line in there, my good opinion once lost is lost forever. It's really kind of what we've adopted as our global, but certainly cultural, national perception of people. 
We're willing to think highly of a person until they cross the boundary. Now, we may or may not tell them what the boundary is, but once they cross it, well, my good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. I'll never give them another opportunity. I'll never think of them positively again. I will never think of them and give them a chance. In fact, actually, interestingly, cancel culture is not just kind of a new invention. It exists, in fact, as really the earliest problem, one of the earliest problems that the church had to kind of deal with and sort out. You remember the early church kind of grew from Jerusalem and throughout the world under a tremendous amount of persecution. And while we would like to say that all of those dear saints were faithful martyrs and that they suffered and held the line and professed the faith and died and are counted amongst the martyrs, the sad reality is a substantial number of them actually didn't. They weren't faithful. The persecution got too bad. The Romans were too terrible. They uh, really did horrible things to humans. I mean, it, it, they were pioneers in some ways as to how bad it could be. And the sad reality is that some Christians actually caved and said, I I don't know the man. I'm not a Christian. I'm not that person. And the church had to figure out, what are we supposed to do? Do we receive them back? And there was a portion of the church that said, hey, we're welcome to forgive sins, even these. And there was a portion of the church that said, that is the unforgivable sin. Once you have transgressed that line, There is no more mercy. And it almost split the early church. It's one of the really big problems in early church history. It's pretty wild. Which I find to be amazing because I think actually it's very clearly answered in Scripture. Specifically, Matthew chapter 26G. Our sermon as we end out the chapter, I think it addresses quite clearly what do we do with saints as they struggle with sin? In fact, actually, we might even go so far as to say what do we do with saints that struggle with the biggies. This is as big as it gets. I have a couple of encouragements for you and maybe perhaps some confrontation as we go to think about this passage. And the first idea I kind of want to challenge you to shouldn't be anything that any of us would perhaps disagree with, but maybe be reminded of the scope of this. The challenge for us as dear saints of the Most High to be on guard against the corrupting nature of sin. Where we are in this passage, it really is a familiar section of Scripture, but a lot of times we kind of forget the larger context of what's taking place. Remember, they are just having left shortly before The Passover feast, the Last Supper, they've just had an extensive period of time where Jesus has been teaching them, where he's been instructing them. And it was in the middle of that feast that Jesus kind of finally reveals to them, I know one of you is going to betray me. I know it. And they all kind of panic. They all have a little bit of a freak out. Is it me? Ah, it's probably not me. It's got to be that guy, right? Maybe no, okay, it's me. And they they don't have a good answer and they're kind of freaking out. Jesus then gives them very clear explanation. It's the guy I'm sharing the dish with. It's this one, at which point he goes out. It would have been extraordinarily awkward. 
I mean, you want to talk about kind of social faux pas in the middle of, you know, your big high religious feast to have your master call you out for being a traitor. A little awkward. As he juts to go betray the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you have this fantastic interchange where Peter says, well, at least I'm not that guy. Now, he's the traitor. He's the Benedict to Arnold. At least I'm not that guy. I'll never be that guy. At which point Jesus lovingly corrects him. No, you are going to be that guy. No, in fact, actually, you're going to be the guy who's going to do that. You're not just going to betray me. You're going to betray me today, and it's going to happen before the rooster crows. You're going to be the sinner. All that's important because if you're thinking about moments in life in which you would be most on guard against sin, this is it. Like if ever there's been a a human in human history that has been in a situation prepped to be on guard against sin, it's Peter in this moment. He's just left a massive time of worship with Jesus. He's just had the first Lord's Supper. He's just watched his friend stab Jesus in the back, metaphorically, not literally. And he's been warned that he himself is going to do it. Here's a man that would have every single possible incentive not to sin. And how long does he last? Well, not very And again, I suspect part of that is the situation is perhaps a bit more grim than we might realize. It starts with Peter sitting outside in the courtyard. It's not just the courtyard of a house. He's sitting outside in the courtyard, uh, basically kind of waiting for the council to finish the kangaroo court in which they are attempting to convict Jesus. Now, they can't really honestly convict him because Jesus has done nothing wrong, but they're uh, bringing in false witnesses, and it's a bit of a sham and a show. Peter's kind of waiting, and in some sense, this is an honorable thing for Peter to do. At this point, we don't know what's going to happen to the disciples. We don't know if they're going to be arrested too. We don't know if they're going to be murdered. We We don't know what's going to happen to them. And so there is a sense in which Peter, when he said earlier, look, I'm going to stay with you till death, he starts the story in the honorable position. He's ministered to by Christ. He's strengthened by Christ. He's just come from a time of prayer in which he got a good nap. He's doing all right. And actually does the honorable, courageous thing. Waits to see what happens. And I love how you get to see kind of (laughs) just the working of how people, how really fragile we are. As much as we like to pretend like we're these great, strong, and sturdy folks that, you know, we're these immovable mountains, all it takes is the least threatening human you could possibly dream up. A little servant girl. Not one who would have necessarily had any power, not one who necessarily could have even had ear of those who would be important or even risk his life. This is a nobody. This is a person who would have no say over anything. She's a nobody. She's part of the background scenery. She's a person you wouldn't even notice. And she asks, well, it's not a question here, a statement. You're with Jesus. 
gives us a clue that everybody here is aware of the situation. Uh, the arrest of Jesus is not entirely private, and if you've ever lived in a small town, you know that nothing's ever private in a small town. You get the impression, actually, that the crowd gets larger as the night goes on. More people gather to hear what's happening. More people gather to see what's taking place. But she makes a simple statement. You are with him. I mean, what an opportunity for him to to share the good news. Yes, I've been with him for years. He is the one who saved me. He, He told me of the way that my sins could be dealt with. He told me about the kingdom of God. He told me that he's going to die and be raised again. What an opportunity to share his faith. I mean, as a pastor, I don't, I don't get opportunities that often, that, that rich. This is fantastic. You were with Jesus. Amen. Yes, I was. Thank you for noticing. Let's have a conversation. Instead, he lies. And it's a stupid lie. It's an evil lie. He denied it before all of them. So she's having this conversation. There's a crowd that's watching. Denies it before all of them. I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Which again, just again, makes me chuckle in so many ways. The town is not that big. I mean, within the previous week, Jesus had a coronation event where he rode into town and they tried to crown him as king on a donkey. Cleared out the temple in the biggest time of the year. It's not like he's not been noticeable. And you would think, honestly, if this was your life, this would be the worst moment of your entire existence. That when given the opportunity to talk about the good news, the least threatening person in the world scared you so badly that you lied about Jesus. Not even lied about yourself. Well, you get to see that sin is not kind of stationary. That's a really important thing to realize. Sin is not stationary. It's much like if you ever go out into the ocean in a strong current. You, you walk in at this point in the ocean and you go to ride the waves. And when you walk out of the... Where do you walk? You walk out way down there. Because the current was pulling you all along and you didn't realize it. And unfortunately, the current of sin is pulling Peter. Sin's not stationary. It takes you further than you want to go. It pulls you in directions you would never intend and hear. It gets worse. 71, he obviously is made uncomfortable by the young lady. So he does what, you know, any robust, heroic man would do. He runs away from her. Finds a new place to wait. Goes out to the entrance, a different part of the courtyard, a different part of bystanders. And I, I love, you have to kind of piece it together. It's told in a number of the Gospels, all four of them actually. Uh, she follows him and another one with her. And the whole crowd at this point begins to kind of get in on it and start asking him questions. And it's not just her at this point. You get Luke tells us it's a man. Mark tells us it's the same girl. Uh, John tells us a whole bunch of unidentified people, but a, a crowd begins to ask him questions. 
And so now it's not just an issue of him lying to a young girl. It's not just an issue of him lying to one person whom the culture would say is unimportant. Now he has a a crowd of witnesses. And you think, all right, this is where he's going to do it. All right, this is is where he's going to get it. This is where he's going to nail it. He's he's not going to fail here. Right, what a mess. This man was with Jesus. Verse 72, now he intensifies. Not just lying, not just denying, but denying specifically with an oath. I swear to you on all that is holy, I did not do that or something to that effect. Yikes. Yikes. At this point, he's not just calling his own character into question as being true, but actually invoking greater severity to his words. I do not know the man. This is explicitly what Christ has forbidden. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't take unreasonable oaths. This is an unreasonable oath. He's swearing in some sense, to God Almighty, that he does not know God Almighty. If ever there was an evil sentence said, friends, this is it. And he's gone from, I don't know what you're talking about, which is kind of maybe a nondescript way of maybe not addressing it, to now actually swearing to God in some fashion that he doesn't know God, doesn't know Christ. Which is an un, just kind of, if you pause and think about it, if you'd been rewound time four hours, five hours, do you think Peter ever could have thought he would have done that? I mean, actually, we literally know he didn't think that because he said, I will die for you before I deny you. He literally said it's in the text in the previous part of the chapter. Sin is not stationary, and now we see the current of sin has dragged him way down the beach. He's caught in a rip current, and it's not going well for him. In fact, you know the passage, it only gets worse from there. We find out from the other Gospels, verse 73, it takes an hour to get to the third interchange. After a little while, the bystanders came up, and you get the impression that they've kind of been milling around and not like you do in the DMV if you're in a short line at the DMV, and I mean a short line at the DMV is like two hours. If you've, if you've ever been in a long line at the DMV, like four or five hours, you get stuck there, eventually the wait gets so tedious that you start talking with everybody, no matter how much you don't like them, and they don't like you, and how uncomfortable everybody is, and it's just weird, and you just don't do that. Eventually it just gets to you, and you're like, I have to strike up a conversation. Apparently that's happened where the awkwardness has passed enough at least where they've started talking and uh, been able to be cordial in some fashion. And uh, I love it. It, it, about an hour later, you get it again in verse 73. Certainly you're one of those people too because you got the accent. Like you can't hide that. You can't. It's obvious. It would be like if we took Brandon up to a church in New York. You'd kind of figure out pretty quick. He doesn't fit from there right away. You can't hide it. 
It's not accent neutral. You know. But sin not being stationary rather than answering even with the same sin, he intensifies even further. Now, he then says, and this is horrible, he invokes a curse on himself and then swears. So, uh, something to the effect of saying, like, let the Lord destroy me if this isn't true. I do not know the man. And whereas the previous sentence he said was the worst thing probably uttered by human mouth, this surpasses it. He is invoking the Lord's wrath upon him if he's lying. And again, if you you rewound at any point in his time with Jesus, could you ever have thought, would Peter have ever conceived that he would be in a situation where he would be saying, let the Lord destroy me if this is false. I don't know Jesus. We give Peter a rough time as we've read the Gospels, I think many of us, but you have to admit, like, this is the guy who in many ways, he's a bit hot-headed, but he's probably the single most courageous man in the church at this point. When it comes time for somebody to lead the way into uncharted territory of faith, it's Peter. This is the guy that would be the hero in so many stories because, yeah, he's not going to get it all right, but he's out leading from the front. And here you have the great hero of the church bringing God's judgment upon himself, denying Christ. And friends, I would remind you and encourage you, sin is absolutely not a stationary thing. It's corrupting, it's infecting, distorting, and rotting. Put in a way that maybe on the lower shelf for some of us, sin makes you stupid. It damages how you think, it damages how you feel, it infects you and moves through you. And this changes how we think about sin when we begin to understand this. Because honestly, most of us in this room at some point in our life have intentionally committed one of those kind of shirt pocket sins, right? One of the ones where we like, I know I'm sinning, but I'm going to draw the line here. I know it's, I know it's bad. It's a sin. The Bible tells me not to but I'm not going to go any further than that. Like right here, this is fine. No, I mean like right there, it's fine. No, I mean like right there, it's fine. You find it's amazing how quickly that line moves. And you wake up one day and you're like, how did I get here? How did I get here? What happened? Children in the church, I would particularly teach you now and make this point to you. Learn this when you're young. Sin doesn't stop. And it doesn't stop where you want it to. It takes you places you would never want to go. It leads you by the hand into places you would never want to be. And you will find yourself saying, how did I get here? 
and do not like it. Adults, I would lovingly make the same point. Just because you've got a couple of decades on those that are younger doesn't mean we need to be reminded of this any less. In fact, actually, I think in some ways it's perhaps a bit more dangerous for us because of our pride to say, well, I've got enough self-discipline. This is the line. I'll go no further. Friends, if you find yourself in a situation where you're saying, this is the line, I'll go no further, you really, really, really need to pay attention because you're most likely toying with sin in some fashion. And sin makes you stupid. Further, sin creates other sins. That's the thing that you can kind of be shocked at and how this works. He really, his sin probably, most likely at the beginning, is what tends to get Peter in trouble, is that while he is courageous at the start, fear creeps in in the back. He, he, he yeah, lead the charge, and then once it gets kind of quiet or the waves get wild, that, that's when he starts having doubts and fears, and it gets him into trouble. But he goes from probably having doubts and fears in a conversation with a young lady uh, to swearing to the Lord Almighty to destroy him if he is lying. Sin creates other sins. And I would maybe make one more application as you think about this, that if you ever find yourself in a situation, and children, I'd particularly instruct you with this one, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you say, oh, I could never do that. Oh, I could, I could never do that. I'm not sure there are more dangerous words in the English language than to say, oh, I could never do that. Oh, you absolutely could do that. In fact, actually, I'd probably say you not only could do that, you're probably three decisions away from doing it. You just don't realize that. No matter how awful it is, no matter how uh, repugnant it is, how no uh, icky it is, you're probably three decisions away at any given moment. Be on guard against the corrupting nature of sin. It's awful. I can't imagine again how awful it would be to have your worst moment enshrined in Scripture forever. Your greatest failure written for all of humanity to see forever. But I do think there is comfort in the midst of this perhaps encouragement for us to take through this. We're reminded from the previous part in the chapter here, if you were to turn back the page before uh, Matthew 26 verse 31, you would be reminded, kind of second thing to take away here is that be reminded that God already knows your sins. In fact, He even knows them before you commit them. Verses 31 through 35, this is the fantastic interchange that Jesus has with Peter where he explains to Peter what he's going to do, what Peter's going to do. You will fall away from me this night. I'll never fall away from you this very night. You're going to fall away before the rooster crows. You're going to deny me three times. How specific is that? And I would say this is a good thing to be kind of contemplating in general is that the Lord does know your sins. He knows them before you commit them. He knows them while you commit them. In fact, actually, you want to have good motivation not to sin, at least intentionally so, 
Every time you're getting ready to think about the fact that deeds done in secret here are done in public in heaven. Right? That everything you do in secret here, the things that you're like, ooh, I got away with it. It's being watched. The Lord knows. It's not hidden from him. In fact, actually, this is a weird one to think about. Think about how many times you've committed private sin thinking, not realizing that the angels were there with you. Creatures that don't have bodies the way that we do? I don't know. They might be with us. I'm not sure. I don't know when they are. I don't know when they're not. But it is amazing how often even our sin, we're banking on secrecy. Deeds done in darkness. And one of the great takeaways from this is there is no deed done in darkness. There is no deed ultimately done in private. There is no deed done without people knowing. Everything's done in public. This is actually, I think, one of the great things. It's been funny watching kind of just the the different generations, kind of as I pastor through this, the different generations and ages having to wrestle with an understanding, they come to understand what a loss of privacy looks like in our current world through these wonderful little devices in your email and everything like that. And I love how just kind of hopeful some people are that they can do something in secret. And they know everything about you. It's listening to my sermon now. I hope they do. It will be good for them. I'm not worried. We have this kind of illusion that we're the only one who knows what we do. And I love how this is just this kind of tremendous contrast. The Lord knows it. I suspect that might be a great encouragement for you to stop sinning the next time you want to try to do that, to remember God's watching you and perhaps even the angels are with you. But even more so is to take comfort. To take comfort that when the Lord planned for your salvation, your sins were not a surprise. Right? When, when the triune God plotted out the plan of redemption prior to the creation of the world, and He thought about you specifically, and planned for Christ to go to the cross for you specifically, He didn't plan for your best version of you. He planned for the real you. And honestly, I do think many of us, we've kind of lost some of perhaps the zeal that we might have uh, for the salvation that Christ provides because we think that Christ is interacting with the picture we have of ourselves in our head, which for many of us is much more positive than it should be. Right? For many of us, we're sinless people that occasionally do sinful things in our heads. It doesn't really work that way, but that's what we think of ourselves for many of us, right? We're, we're good people that occasionally are tricked into doing bad things. And so salvation is a good thing, but it's a bit of an expected thing because I'm already a good guy. Of course Jesus would want to do that. I'm a good guy. I'm on his team. 
But forgetting that when salvation was planned, the Lord, again, not from a position of ignorance, He knows all of who you are. He knows all of what you are. He knows all of the unknown about you. He knows the dirty secrets of your heart. And that's the person He was planning salvation for. And I personally love contemplating that in terms of the promises of God that when He, you read of Him pledging Himself to you, It's not an ignorance of the evil you've done. It's in full knowledge. When he makes statements like, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. That's not the best version of you that he's making that promise to. It's the worst version of you that he's making that promise to. When he calls us saints, holy ones set apart for the Lord, he's not making that to the best version of us. It's to the worst version of us. He knows fully who we are. And never cannot know. And still loves us. I find this to be just one of the most tremendously comforting things is that He loves us in the fullness of the knowledge of what we've done. What a contrast we have from our kind of current cultural moment where you, you cross some invisible line, some cultural norm, whatever it is. And you're cut off from culture for seemingly ever, which equates to about four days until the next person does it worse. Instead, we have with Christ a full knowledge of who we are and Him still going to the cross, still proclaiming His love and still accomplishing it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It also gives us the freedom to kind of interact with sin differently. We have this great warning to not toy with it, to not play with it because it's corrupting in nature. We have this great reminder that God knows it. Therefore, again, don't treat it lightly because the Lord is genuinely and fully aware of it. But it gives us the freedom to be those that forgive because we have been forgiven. I mean, if you think about it, this really is, at this point in history in the church, probably the worst thing you could do. Paul's going to surpass that in a couple of weeks, but at this point, it's probably the worst. I mean, if we're going to talk about a pastor having moral failure, that's it. I mean, that's pretty much it, right? I mean, he's literally swearing to the Lord himself that he doesn't know the Jesus that he's serving. He's denying the faith at its most core basic level. This is as great of a moral failure as you could possibly imagine. You think, oh man, that disqualifies him from ministry forever. He's done. That's it. That's the end. He's finished. It's over. He's useless. His sin is too big for God to use. You can't use a man who's denied the faith. Or you could build your entire church around him. Which would you go with? I love you get to see the contrast between how we as humans, how we as humans think and how God himself thinks. I'm going to be honest, my temptation if I had this guy in our midst would be like, yeah, he's never teaching Sunday school. He's not going to be with the kids. Let's figure out how we can keep him in the building but not talk with anybody. Well, let's be honest, right? This is the kind of, I don't want to, I mean, we're not going to throw him out, but let's see if we can kind of mitigate the damage so he can't contaminate anyone else. 
But it's interesting. Matthew doesn't include it. John does in chapter 21. Jesus goes to interact with him after the resurrection. Simon Peter, Jesus addresses Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Gives him opportunity again to be like, I'm sorry. Yes, you know that I love you, and he gives him the commission, feed my lambs. You know the story, he actually does it three times, mirroring the three denials. Three restorations from Christ. Feed my sheep. And then immediately tells him, oh, by the way, you're going to die a terrible death as well. But it's intriguing that Jesus doesn't think the way that we think because this is the kind of thing that unforgivable sin that we would never ever deal with, that we would never trust with anything, that we would never allow near our children, that we would never allow to be anywhere near our church. And interestingly, Jesus uses him to be the building block, one of. To be one of the men that pushes forward, to be one of the men who says, I have been forgiven, let me tell you of the man who has forgiven my sin. Let me tell you of the Jesus who changed my life. I suspect if your heart is anything like mine, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance in it right now because realistically we don't like to forgive people. We really don't. I mean, we say we do. And we say that in front of our children. But inside, let's be honest, we like to hold it against them forever in our minds. I was raised in the South. I know the game. I can recite to you, before I had COVID, my memory disappeared. I can recite to you every sin that I've heard of for all 40 years of my life. It's interesting that instead we get to be those that participate in forgiveness. The removal of sin, the restoration of the sinner, the building up because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ paid the penalty. While we were still sinners, Christ was victorious. While we were still sinners. Friends, this is the good news in the church. Because honestly, I know there are some of you that sit in here every Sunday I know this. I know you. You sit in here every Sunday and you think, Peter has nothing on me. The sins I've committed, we don't talk about that. Some of you in here sit and think, the sins that I've committed, I personally have done my previous life, maybe my current life. You sit here and you wonder, surely the good news can't be mine. Because I'm too bad. Because my sin's too great. Because the shame won't let me believe it to be true. I I love where this is located in the passage. Right at the pinnacle of the ministry of Jesus... One of his best friends betrays him. And what does he do? He invites him to go pray with him. And when he fails him in that, he goes to the cross for him. 
Friends, there's nothing that you have done, are doing, or will do that can be greater than what is accomplished on the cross. The devil will try to keep you from believing that. Some of you in here, I'm serious, some of you in here, you wrestle with shame in such a way. And friends, I would say that shame is not of Christ. For he has forgiven sins fully. It's not to make light of sin. It's not to say that it doesn't have consequences. I already talked about that. But not something to be taken lightly. And how is that possible? Well, the gospel writers are doing something here with how they've told this. You remember, they're telling a true story, but they like to tell it a certain way in order to call certain things to mind. We already read one of them. I promise I have pardon, Matthew chapter 4. Brandon read for us. Christ, being confronted with not these temptations, but far worse temptations. At their core, they're the same thing. They're an opportunity to deny God. At their core, they're an opportunity to deny God's faithfulness. At their core, they're an opportunity to deny God's truth, to deny God's provision. Rather than folding, rather than collapsing, rather than lying, rather than falling apart, Christ stays the course. He's perfect where we were not. He's victorious where we have failed. He's righteous where we have sinned. He is the Redeemer. I love how all of these stories are kind of told again in three so you can kind of help see the connection. Three temptations failed by Peter. Three restorations given by Christ. Three temptations surpassed by Christ. So that together we can marvel at who He is. Now in with one application for us as a church. The Lord has been very generous to this church. He has blessed us so richly. When we started this building plan in that building, it was perhaps even a bit big for us to think of the building being quite as full as it is. Tom says this with great regularity, and I love the way he says is that the more people show up, it's the more opportunity to have our toes stepped on or have our feelings hurt. I might even go one step further in saying it's more of an opportunity for us, to, for us to have people to judge, for us to have people to keep that quiet record of sins in the back of our head, to have that quiet record of failings, or even worse yet, for us, some of you, to have a list of people who are better than we are with the shame and the debilitating effects of sin. Friends, might it be together that we would actually just view this body as this is the group of people that we have the privilege of forgiving the most easily. These are the people. I hate to break it to you, but almost everybody in this room is going to sin against you at some point if you continue coming to this church. 
I know I will. You'll do it to me too. It's okay. I get it. It's not personal. Might be. Actually, it often is, actually, now you think about it. Might it be that we would go about church together as an opportunity for us to view each other as the people we have the joy to forgive because Christ has forgiven us first. We acknowledge sin. We know we do it. I know you do it. You know I do. But Christ is greater than even that. Might we be a people who are quick to forgive and slow to anger. Father, we thank you where we are weak, Christ is strong. And it's so easy for us to see our weakness when it comes time to talk about forgiveness. Because we don't like to do it. Forgive us for our forgiveness. And instead, O oh Lord, please unite us in our union with Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.